Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And the word of the Lord reads, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Martin Luther once wrote, Now the church is not wood and stone, but the company of people who believe in Christ. While you have your Bibles out, please just turn with me back a little bit to Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 16 there. Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This right here is Paul's opening declaration as he begins to lay out for us the most complete explanation of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And, and because, because in this letter, Paul, in explicable, clear detail, he lays out for us what the gospel is, the blessings the gospel accomplishes for those who believe it, how the gospel works, the freedom that the gospel gives and the indestructible hope given to all of us, all of us who trust in Christ, right? And the essence of this gospel is this, because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, those who put their faith in Him are completely saved. They are justified, which means they're declared righteous by God, and they're being sanctified even now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day we'll be completely glorified as God finishes His work in us. And those who trust in Christ can rest assured because they are safe completely in the hands of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the power that Paul's referring to. Right? All the way back in chapter 1. This gospel message right, that Paul takes 11 chapters to unpack, is the very power of the creator of all things. The power of God to take sinful man in his rebellion and radically transform him in his nature and character so that he can be reconciled in right relationship with God. The relationship that we were created for in the first place. And I mention this because I think that we forget sometimes the underlying truth that's here. And that is the transformation of a sinner into a member of God's family is a miracle of epic proportions. 
When God rescues a sinner, it's not simply him reaching his hand out to someone wanting to be rescued. Right? It is not God reaching down to help us up. It is God having to use the same power that He used in creation, the same power that He used to raise Christ back to life. Salvation isn't God taking something that has become dirty and then washing it and making it clean again. It is God taking something that was dead and decomposed and rotting and restoring it back to new life. It is God taking something that was completely broken and destroyed beyond repair and miraculously making it new again. That's what happened when we were saved. Your salvation is a miracle of epic proportions. A miracle that required the work of the entire triune God to accomplish. God the Father decreed it. Christ the Son paid for it. The Holy Spirit applies it. That's the power that Paul is speaking of. The gospel has the power to radically change and alter the very nature of those who hear it. It is the very power of the true and living God. And again, I bring this up because this miraculous transformation that the gospel produces in our lives isn't a superficial change. It's a radical change in who we are. We were once dead as Paul says, and now we're alive in Christ. Where we were once had hearts of stone, have had them removed and put in hearts of flesh. We who once hated God now find that He's our treasure. We who loved our sin are growing in our hatred of it. This transformation is so complete that the Bible says that we're a new creation. This transformation then affects everything about us, our, our attitudes, our mindset, our worldview, our thoughts, and even our actions. That's the radical power of God that Paul's talking about, and this radical power that, that Paul explains in 11 chapters, and beginning in chapter 12, he explains that this radical transformation brought about by the power of God ought to impact our lives in very real and tangible ways. It ought to impact how we live towards God Himself. As Paul explains in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of the radical transforming power of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The gospel impacts how we live before God, that we're to offer our lives to Him. But it also impacts how we should live with the rest of humanity, which, by the way, is what chapters 12 through 15 is going to be about, how we live in light of the gospel towards the rest of the world. And if there is one word that defines this new radical lifestyle, if there is one word that points to how we are to live, the word is simply this. It is love. We are to love other people. We're to love all other people. By the way, that's the overwhelming declaration of scriptures. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love even what? Our enemies. And we are to love one another as Christ loves us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 
If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledges, knowledge, and, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, the defining characteristic of our transformed lives is not our church attendance. The defining characteristic of our faith is not our religiousness. And it's certainly not our ability to not say bad words anymore. And it's not in our ability to just somehow miraculously overcome our own addictions. The defining characteristic of a transformed life is love. Our love for God and our love for other people. And in chapters 12 through 15, Paul explains how we ought to live out this love for our neighbors and for those in authority and even, even our enemies. But the group of people that Paul begins with, as we've been talking about, the group of people he begins with as he explains how, how to live in light of the gospel is the family of God. That's the starting point, the church, the body of Christ. Paul says we are to humble ourselves and submit to one another, and we are to serve each other with the supernatural gifts that God has given us. And Paul says the reason for this is because we are part of the same family. And as such, we are not only part of Christ, but we are part of each other. And if there's anything in the last few weeks that, that you can just hold on to and just take home and meditate on is that truth that we are part of one another. Our union with Christ brought us into union with one another. And, and just as, as we have been reconciled to God, we have been reconciled one to another, which means dividing walls between us has been torn down. They've been removed. We are united in Christ as family. And this is not theoretical. This is not just, hey, pie in the sky stuff. It's, it's a settled reality, right? As we said last week, it's a settled reality. What we need to do now is just simply live like it. We need to believe it and live like it. But the question that naturally follows then is, is how? How do, we, how do we live this way? Well, given we still live in a fallen world, filled full of fallen people, and given we ourselves still struggle with sin or are buffeted by sin, and given that we don't always see eye to eye, and given that we don't always you know, feel like being around each other, how do we live this unified life as the family of God in the body of Christ? Well, the answer again is simple. It is love. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. And the first thing I need to point to you is this, is the word that Paul uses here for love is the word agape. And this is important because in the Greek language, there are several different words that we translate as love. You have romantic love, the kind of love that's between a man and a woman. You have brotherly love. And you have the family love, especially like the, the love that parents have for their children. 
But then you have agape love. And what's unique about, about this kind of love is that it's a love of the will. You see, the other forms of love are grounded in some form of emotion. And I want you to understand, emotion's not bad. It's good sometimes, most of the time. Right? But the other forms of love are grounded in emotion. They're led by our feelings. This kind of love is grounded in the will. It's a love that chooses to love, even when our emotions and our feelings wane. Now understand, agape love is not devoid of emotion, but it's a love that's not ruled over by emotion. And because of that, then, we use other terms like unconditional love, a no-strings-attached kind of love, a love that is given and requires no merit, a love that exists simply because one chooses to love. And by the way, this is the kind of love we ought to have for one another, that we willingly choose to love each other in this way. And the reason for that is twofold. First, it's because this is the kind of love that we need. We all need this kind of love. And secondly, it's the kind of love that God has displayed toward us himself. Remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, what did Paul say? But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the standard and example of this kind of love. Though we didn't deserve it, though we did everything possible not to deserve it, God in His grace, by His own will, decided He chose to love us. No strings attached, no conditions, no if, if you'll just change, if you'll just stop doing that, if you'll just clean yourself up. You know what? If you'll just... Stop being such a jerk. You know, I'll love you. None of that. Before we could even do anything, that's the point of the the Scripture, before we could do anything for Him, He chose to love us. And not only did He just love us, but He demonstrated, He showed that love for us, as Paul says. And I know this is a simple truth, We've talked about it before, but it bears reflection because this is the kind of love that Paul is saying ought to be the outworking of the gospel in our lives that we have for one another. It's even the love that Jesus says that we're to have. If you remember, in fact, just turn with me to um, John chapter 13. I want you to see it with your own eyes. In John 13, verse 34. Jesus says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you will love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We, as the members of Christ, are to have this kind of love for each other. And understand, this wasn't a suggestion. We're to choose to love each other. 
Not because we deserve it. Not because we will always see the same perspective. Not because we'll always agree, but because the grace that God has given us should fill us up to the point that it overflows out of us for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to love each other with that agape kind of love. Right? And let's just be honest, this is something that at times we all fail to completely live up to. And as we said, for some reason, we, we hold our church family to a higher standard than everyone else around us. It's just for something in us, for many of us, we just expect that our church family members are just going to be perfect in some way. And when we find that they're not, what do we do? We just cut them out of our lives. We just leave the church. We just ignore them. And then maybe just try to find someone we think is more deserving of our love. But what we're called to as brothers and sisters in Christ is a radically different, higher kind of love. Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Most of you are familiar with these words. He says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears, and notice this, all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, or in some translations, love never fails. Now, now this is a text that many people look at as an example of how couples ought to love each other. And by the way, that's a good application. But the context that Paul wrote this in was not for married couples. He wrote this in the context of the church. It's a love that is supposed to exist in the church, it's about how we're to love each other as a family of God. This is the kind of love that we're to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we choose to love one another even when it's stinking hard. Even when it hurts our feelings. Even when we offend one another. Even when we don't have the same political point of view. Even when we don't like the same football team even when our culture and background seems to be so different that we're at odds with one another. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no, no male or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The dividing wall has been gone. The second thing I want you to notice in this verse is, is the word genuine. Paul says that, that let love, the agape love, be genuine. Right? And I want you to know that he says this to make a statement of emphasis. Because the word that Paul uses here that we translate as genuine means without a mask or unhypocritical. Right? And, and what this word describes really is a sincere behavior free from hidden agendas or selfish motives. So what Paul when Paul says to love or let love be genuine, he's saying that it is a love that is for the benefit of the one who is loved. It is a love that doesn't expect something in return. It's a love not motivated by self-interest. It's a love that loves for the sake of loving. And again, 
This is the kind of love that, that God has for us. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God, God's love was not a selfish love. God's love was a giving love. God loved us in spite of us, and out of the outflow of that love, He gave. Because that's what people do, by the way, when you genuinely love someone. You give selflessly. And what did God give? Because of His love, He gave what was most precious to Him, His beloved Son, who then in turn selflessly gave His life for us because of that love. Paul is saying we ought to love each other for the sake of loving each other. We are to love each other without expecting a benefit, or even having love reciprocated. I'm going to tell you, that's been a hard thing for me to, to overcome in my own life. For just some reason, ever since I was young, I was wired up to seek approval of people, right? To seek, you know, approval and, and love. And sometimes you do things, and when that doesn't come, you get discouraged. But the reality is, is, is as, as we walk with Christ, right, our love ought to grow to the point where we're not looking for that from other people. We are to love unconditionally for the benefit of the one who is being loved. And brothers and sisters, it's, it's only that kind of love. It is only that kind of love that can truly maintain the unity that God is calling us to. It is only when we can love that way where we can overlook our shortcomings, that we can be united in Christ, that we authentically and genuinely choose to love each other without hesitation or reservation or condition. This fragmented church, and when I say church, I'm talking about Orthodox believing churches. True, born again, right? But this fragmented church that we see in the world around us, in large part is because we can't seem to remember to love each other this way. We don't all have to have the exact same doctrinal statement. But we need to love this way. But why are we to love each other this way? Well, Paul said in the very beginning of chapter 12, in light of God's mercy and what He's done for us. By the way, you want to know what God's will for your life is? This is it. Seriously, people spend a lot of time, I wonder what God's will for my life is. I wonder what God's will for my life is. There's a lot of things I can point to, but I'm telling you, this is one of them, is that we love each other this way. This is what is pleasing to Him. This is how we offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. This is how we also are not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the rest of the world because the world does not love like this. That's that we... The body of Christ, the family adopted as brothers and sisters, we are to love each other genuinely and unconditionally. And this kind of love is demonstrated, by the way, in a number of tangible ways in our relationships with one another. This love will impact our relationships. And first, it, first of all, it will be in purity and in discernment. Paul writes, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There would be a lot of, of the Christian life that would just seem to go smoother if we had that tattooed on our brains right there. 
abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We're to hate evil and we're to cling to what is good. What does that mean with respect to how we love each other? Well, first, we're to love each other in purity, meaning that our love for one another must come from pure intentions. We're to love each other not simply just to get something back. Our love for each other isn't so that we can just have a larger network of people to enhance you know, our businesses or networks. I remember uh, living in Bakersfield, being a part of you know, different like you know, networking groups and reading different business books. And they're always, yeah, join a local church so that you can have more. Right? Our love for each other isn't so that we can have a new friend group can help us do projects and move, right? And especially in our context, our love for each other ought to be a chaste love. Unfortunately, there just have been people in, our, in churches who leverage the, the, the innocent and loving nature of the church family for their, for their own gain who tend to cross the line with people. And it's unfortunately not just limited to people in the pew. Sometimes it's even been people in the ministry. We are to love in purity. Our love for one another come, ought to come from, from the purest place. And our love for, other, for each other is also to be discerning, which means we are to know what is right and wrong, and more to the point, we are to be able to speak to what is right and wrong. Because contrary to popular opinion, love tells the truth. Love always tells the truth. Even when the truth is uncomfortable, even when the, tr the truth is hard, we need to love each other enough to be able to look each other in the eye and tell each other the truth. We are to love each other enough to point out what is sin. We need to love each other enough to correct each other. We need to love each other enough to draw each other back when we begin to fall away. And understand, this isn't just the pastors or the deacons' job. This isn't just a church staff member job. This is, this is all of our job. All of us, all of us are called to this. That when we see someone struggle in sin or someone who's falling away or who's, who's really struggling in their faith, that we go to them and that we check on them and that we encourage them and we love them and we bring them back. That we bring the truth of God's word before their eyes, we call them to repent and that we come alongside them and help them to be reconciled. Love is to be pure and discerning. Another demonstration of this love is, is, is family affection. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. What's interesting about this particular phrase is that Paul uses two additional words for love here. He uses the word storge, which is the natural affection that, that parents feel for, their kid, feel for their children. And he uses the word philo or Philadelphia, which is the natural affection of siblings. It's what we call brotherly love. And the picture that Paul is painting is the unconditional love that we are to have for each other ought to manifest itself in a genuine family affection. Our hearts ought to grow in a genuine love and affection for one another. The way that you feel about your children and your grandchildren and about your aunt and your uncle, the way that you feel about your blood relatives ought to be reflected in how we feel about the members of our church family. It should be a real affection. 
Those that God has surrounded you with in the family of God ought to become near and dear to your hearts. Which means we should miss each other when we don't see each other. Which means that we should rejoice when we gather together. We should grow in genuine love and affection for one another. Because this is not a club of people with just some common interests. This is not a Super Bowl party where everybody just loves football. This is the family of the living God. Our love ought to be demonstrated in affection, and it ought to be demonstrated in how we honor each other. Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. John Stott notes that love expresses itself in mutual honor. What does that mean? What it means is that we just show respect for each other. And we make a point to put each other ahead of ourselves. In fact, more more than that, this phrase actually has a competitive element to it. The language speaks of, of, of honoring one another as like a competition. It's like we're competing with each other to show each other honor. It's like when you have people who genuinely enjoy each other's company and they love being around each other and they go to dinner and the check comes, what do they do? They compete for the check. Or when you, when you do something nice for your friend or your family member, what do they do? They do something nice in return. You're like, I didn't do that, so you do that. And then you go and you do something else. A great example of this for me, in, in, for me to, to witness, is, is my wife and her sister. This is exactly how they are. When my wife will do something for my sister, like or her sister like, uh, like d- does her nails or something, you know, her sister will try to pay Kim, and Kim's like, I'm not taking your money. I didn't do that for this, right? And her sister will then be real sneaky and she'll like put it in my wife's purse when she's not looking and my wife will find it and she goes, oh yeah, okay. So she'll drive over to her house and she'll go stick it in the kitchen drawer and and they'll go back and forth throwing money at each other. I just stand in the middle trying to catch it, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But this is the competition, you know, because they love each other. They're trying to outdo each other and showing each other love and honor. That's the idea that Paul's trying to convey here, is that we should be so excited and in love with one another that that we're trying to do good things for one another. We're, We're trying to bring joy to one another's lives. This is the kind of love that ought to be seen all over the church. We're continually honoring each other and preferring each other. Another manifestation of this love is is enthusiasm. Paul writes, Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, I want you to hear me on this, okay? You talk about a scripture that gets twisted out of context in a hurry. Paul is not talking about that fake religious fanaticism that's so common in Christendom. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. That person that you can talk to who just feels like they always have to be on lest you think that they're not a Christian. You ask them, what? How are you doing? I am blessed and highly favored, right? They're just always so excited for the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? They're just always so up and always so amped up. And they've always seemed so excited and motivated about Jesus. There seems to be, in some Christians, Christian circles, this idea that that if you're a Christian, you are not allowed to ever have a bad day. Or if you are, you can't let anybody know that you're having a bad day. Even worse, there are some Christian circles where you can't even even hint to the fact that maybe you might be battling a little bit of depression. 
By the way, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, battled with depression. Martin Luther battled depression. Paul's not talking about this fake religious fanaticism. He's talking about a genuine enthusiasm for one another, a genuine zeal for serving God and serving other people. Being together ought to bring us joy. And when it doesn't bring you joy, then the rest of us ought to be joyful enough for you and give some of that joy to you. Serving each other ought to create a sense of satisfaction within us, right? That we are, are, are loving the Lord by loving each other. And again, this is not, this is not something we're going to be perfect at the side of heaven. Please don't misunderstand me. But as we live together and love each other and seek to do right by each other, we should naturally have a growing enthusiasm for our church family. Another manifestation of this God love is patience. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If there is a secret to the sauce, it's this right here. Patience. We are to actively love each other patiently. I don't understand why we think that somehow, someway, a person comes to Christ that suddenly they got it all figured out and they're, you know, and they're never going to fall down or do something stupid or not have just struggles. We're to be patient with one another, that we rejoice with each other when things are good and that we patiently endure when things are difficult. And we continually are praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. You get the point, right? And praying for each other. The fact is, we need to be patient with one another. We need not be quick to write each other off when we do something stupid or say something wrong or, you know, chap each other's hide. We need to be not quick to, to jump on each other's case when we fall down. We need to keep in mind that the Christian life is lived in the long term, right? That's why what is the mark of a true Christian? Perseverance over time. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We cannot get caught up in the day-to-day grind of life thinking that things will never change. If our brothers and sisters in Christ have been truly born again, the Holy Spirit, the one that's inside of you, is inside of them, working in them right now, working on them from the inside out. And they are being changed even if you can't see Him working. Little by little, by the power of God, we need to just exercise patience for one another. And I'm going to tell you right now, the thing that really helps me to see this has been youth ministry. Because now I've been a pastor long enough and was a youth pastor long enough, I've now seen kids go from three years old to full-grown adults. And I have seen kids that I thought, there is no way they're ever going to make it become, they just somehow figure it out and become respectable adults. There's a young man that I baptized right here, right? There are times I thought I should have drowned him in, in the baptistry, right? right? And that this young man is just full of grace and love and just a sweetheart and going to college and working. I'm just, I'm so proud of him. 
But this is the same thing in the family of God. We need to be patient with one another. Like the, the, when you get your feelings hurt or somebody does something wrong or says something wrong, you need to realize that that was today. Let's go tomorrow, right? We need to be here for each other. We need to be patient the same way God has been patient with us, by the way. The scriptures, if there's another attribute that talks, that they talk, the scriptures talk about with respect to God over and over and over again is God is what? Long suffering. That's another way of saying patient, by the way. You suffer. Okay? Right? We don't like that, right? But that's what patience is. You suffer for a long time. It's not something we want to identify with, but that's the truth. God is long suffering. And the scriptures talk about this over and over again. And I think that first, 2 Peter 3.9 expresses this so very well. He says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should, should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God Himself shows great restraint. And when I say great, I can't even make that word big enough. He shows great restraint with us and is patient with us even when we have sinned and continue to sin against Him. We ought to seek to be like Him in this way, that we patiently endure each other's little quirks, that we allow the Holy Spirit to thicken our skin so we're not so stinking sensitive, that we not expect fully full spiritual maturity out of each other yet because we're not. He's not done with us yet. We're all still growing. And by the way, we need our brothers and sisters to be patient with us. Next is generosity. Paul writes, contribute to the needs of the saints. The truth is many people think and see generosity as really kind of an optional part of the Christian life. I mean, they're all in for grace and love and but then they see generosity, like, ah, eh, you know, I really don't like that so much, Bruce. Now, I want you to understand, talking about generosity is one of those things that I don't typically like to talk a lot about because it always seems like people want to take take that conversation the wrong way. But I hold firm to what what the text says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I absolutely hate arm twisting. I don't believe in using guilt to get people to tithe. I have seen that in churches. I have, I have been offended by how, how, that's been, how, how that has been handled before. But my job is, is simply to point you what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures say we need to take care of each other what it says. Let's go to Microsoft right there for you. <laughs> now, this isn't a call for the church to become a long-term entitlement program either, right? For those who refuse to work. I mean, Paul even says, for, if you don't work, you don't eat. But it's a call for us as a church family to invest in one another and to help each other and invest in the work that the church does. Sometimes, we just get to that place where we just need somebody to, to lend us a little helping hand. Sometimes we just get to a spot where just things just fall apart and we just need our church family to come alongside us and prop us back up and make us healthy again so we can then do the same for one another. And then finally is hospitality. 
Paul writes, seek and show hospitality. It did work. The reality is if, if we're a family, then we ought to act like a family and spend time with each other. That's what it comes down to. We ought to find ways to, to be together outside of Sunday service. By the way, that's why we have a coffee cart. And I want you to know that fellowship that takes place, some, and there's different people that comes during the week, but that fellowship that takes place, even though that I'm working, trying to get finished up, I walk in and I'm just blessed by that, to seeing, you know, seeing people get caught up on, on details of each other's lives and just visiting and having coffee. We ought to find ways to be together. That's, that's why we host meals. That's why we have couples dinners. That's why we have a cornhole tournament. And it wasn't rigged. We didn't, me and Kim didn't win because I'm the pastor, right? It just happened to work out that way. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, the truth is we just need to seek to spend time with each other and help other people to do the same. Hospitality or having someone over for dinner or hosting you know, a get-together is really just an important part of us growing in our lives together and loving each other. Right? By the way, if Creston will keep making deviled eggs, we'll keep having more potlucks. So. <laughs> Amen. Right, but this is how we how we spend time with each other in our own families, by the way. That's the model, right? We when when we want to want to gather our families together, we do that over a meal. We get together for some occasion. We hang out, we talk, we break bread, we laugh, we talk. Sometimes we cry, right? And then we grow in our relationship with one another. We grow those bonds that way. We ought to do the same for our church family. We are united in Christ. A bond that is stronger than family relationship. As the old saying goes, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of birth. If Christ is truly our treasure and preeminent in our lives, then the family he has given us ought to be a treasure to us as well. And we ought to desire to spend time with each other, growing in our mutual affection for one another. So then, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, first of all, again, I will always make a point to say is if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. The basis of everything in the Christian life is Him. Right? If you're not in Christ, turn to Him by faith. And He says that He will not put you to shame, that He will save you. And the gospel is simply this, that you're a sinner in rebellion to God by your nature. And there's nothing you can do on your own to fix it. And because of that, God's wrath and anger abides on you. But it doesn't have to be that way because God in His grace, by His will, which still mystifies me, decided by His grace to send His Son into the world to live the life that you ought to live and to die in your place. And then rose him three days later, proving that he can do what he came to do, which is to save sinners. And what we're, what's required of us, we turn and we believe. We repent of, and believe. That's simple. We put our trust and our hope on Christ. And the promise is that we are saved. Now, for those of you who are in, are in Christ, We ought to actively grow in our love for each other. Right? But what if you don't feel like it? Right? 
what if you just, I just really don't feel like loving my church family today. I don't, I just don't like that dude that upsets me. You know what? I just, I just don't, didn't like the way that she talked to my, my, my granddaughter the other day. I don't like, you know, here's the thing. When you, your heart is filled full of joy, then love. When you have nothing to give, hold on to Christ. Because he's the one that makes this all possible anyway. Hold on to him, cling to him. And then just pray what we always pray. Lord, change my heart. I know that I'm supposed to love these people, but Lord, I don't feel it today. In fact, I really could like throw a brick through their window right now. <laughs> Who's been there before? Come on, raise your hand. All right, yeah, there we go. We cling to Christ because He is our hope and it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to, to live this life. And guess what? There are days that we're going to be good at this and there are days that we're not. But ultimately, you know, our hope isn't that we're going to be good at this. Our hope is Christ Himself who will empower us to live this way. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.